Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Welcome back to the Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. As you might tell right away from the audio quality, I'm in my car. I haven't done I haven't done a mobile podcast for quite a while. And so the audio quality will not be up to snuff. I'm not using that $600 microphone I paid for on this one. I've just got a little lavalier clipped to my sweatshirt neck. And hopefully it'll pick it up. But as you can see, when I turn my head, I fade in and out. Well, it's uh, 23rd of March today. I'm heading up to the summer home, (laughs) which is the fall home and winter home right now. It's raining like crazy in Salt Lake City. And uh, up up at the uh, summer home, it's snowing. I just call my workers up there. My contractor decided to come out and get to work early on it this year because he wanted to make sure I was done before the sailing season started. And part of the reason is he plans on sailing with me this summer. He's going to be the uh, the put-up crew. Vehicle I'm driving up today is a 1996 Toyota Land Cruiser. Lifted a little bit with a winch on the front. I mean, I look like a total redneck today. But this thing will get in there when my other vehicles would not get in there. In fact, I almost got stuck coming out last night. Had to make a trip down to the city, so I had to drive through our super muddy roads to get out. (laughs) This is a mess. We had an inspection yesterday, and the inspector was barely able to get in to to give us an inspection on the, uh, the weather sheeting on the house. But anyway, it's coming along well, and I wanted to make sure it was done enough because this year I do plan on spending my full two months out sailing. But I've changed changed my route. I had a feeling I was going to. When I did my route planning episode... I did a route where I basically went out, sailed in Greek waters, and then came back to Turkey at the end of the year. Well, I've changed my route. I'm going to be going to Dubrovnik for the end of the year. And so where the previous route was around 700 miles, the route to get to Dubrovnik is uh, about, oh, about 950 miles, give or take a little bit. I did talk to Jack Andres. He... He suggested I might go to Marina Ragusa and south of Sicily, and they gave me a bid, and the bid was more expensive than uh, ACI Dubrovnik. And quite honestly, Marina Ragusa would be great if you were a liveaboard and left your boat in the water, but I'm not a liveaboard, and I like to take my boat out of the water at the end of the year and put on a full cover. The full cover has really protected the boat over the years. I'm on my second full cover. I had a new one built in Turkey a few years ago, and it's holding up well. But it really saves the teak on my boat. I have a lot of exterior teak, and if I just left it exposed 
for, well, I guess it's basically 10 months of the year, it would be looking a lot worse than it does. So my route is going to be leaving uh, Bodrum, Turkey, clearing in in Kosh, uh, heading up to uh, basically with the first crew up to Patmos. That crew will get off. The next crew will get on in Patmos. Then the second crew is already half filled up. Neil Fletcher is going to be joining me on that second crew. And I've got room for one more. And I'll invite some of my friends to join me on that crew. Or I may even invite one of my listeners to join me on that crew. Now I'm hoping that I will get a Patreon that is at the level where if I have an open crew that, uh, that I will be inviting that Patreon. So far there's no Patreons at that level. And if one Patreon signed up at that level... He would be invited out to the boat because he doesn't have any competition. The way I've got that that reward set up is everybody that signs up for uh, that level of being a Patreon uh, gets an invitation email all at the same time. Well, if there's only one person on that level, that person gets the invitation. So anyway, I hope hopefully I will have a Patreon at that level and I'll be able to invite that person. I've got seven different crews this summer and I've broken it up into about a week each except for the beginning crew and the ending crew they have a few more days so about five days on the boat and a couple days on uh, uh, yeah, one or two days between crews where I can do the work that I need to do to keep keep everybody happy I do have one week that I've blocked out for myself which is a solo sail and I do that because I like to keep my skills up and so I like to take a week and I haven't done this for a while I I like to take a week and just go solo sailing quite honestly it keeps my skill level up it's a lot harder to come into the dock by yourself than it is uh, when you have a crew and you have to think a lot Sailing the boat's easy. That's not a problem. It's, it's coming in and out of port. And if I anchor out, that's easy too. It's not a big deal if I anchor out. I did offer a new service. If you are planning on sailing in Greece or Turkey and doing a bare boat charter and you want a private consultation on my experiences and the places I've been in Turkey and Greece over the last 15 years, I would be glad to talk to you one-on-one provide you my perspective on where you might want to visit and what you might want to do. A lot of this information is free, but if you have specific questions, I'll offer that as a one-on-one consultation. And I have one half-hour sessions and one-hour sessions. If you're interested in that, please write me, franz1 at medsailor.com. That's F-R-A-N-Z-1, the number one, at medsailor.com. I'll just throw that out there. Haven't had any takers, but I've only put it up for a couple weeks now. But it's very specific knowledge for you. That's what it would be for. You have specific questions on the area you're sailing. I'd give you my input and experience over the 15 years I've been sailing in Turkey and Greece. There are a few islands that I haven't visited, but very few. Very few. Most of the inhabited islands in Greece I visited at one time or another. 
before we get on to this podcast, which is really going to be a monologue on answering a couple questions, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. This show is sponsored in part by Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping self-sufficient sailors with tools, supplies, and knowledge they need to sew for their boats. This second-generation family business is also the maker of the Sailrite Ultrafeed sewing machine. The Ultrafeed is a portable, heavy-duty sewing machine that was designed to handle all your maritime sewing projects from sails to covers. At Sailrite, you'll find everything you need to take on your next do-it-yourself project, including fabric, tools, hardware, and even hundreds of free how-to video tutorials. Start your next project at Sailrite.com. That's S-A-I-L-R-I-T-E dot com. Well, the main thing I'm going to be talking about today is answering an email that I got from Richard. Richard's in the UK. And let me pull over here so I can read this email and I don't get in an accident. Right now I'm driving down 7th East in Salt Lake City heading towards the freeway. And once I get on the freeway, I'm not going to be able to pull over. So let me just pull over and read this email. And then I'll start answering it. Richard said, Hi, Sprons. Hope you're well. Nice listening to your latest podcast on the group that did the long charter in the Greek islands. That was Tyler and Ian, I think he's talking about, Drogan. And also your monologue on route planning. I've just booked my summer holiday, and at long last I've persuaded the family to go sailing. I managed to get them out on a motor cruiser on the Norfolk Broads last summer, beautiful wetlands full of wildlife on the east coast of England. And now with some understanding of boat handling skills and requirements, they will be introduced to a boat that doesn't need a noisy engine to make way. If you've never heard of the Broads, and I'm sure your fellow citizens will joke about the name, it's gorgeous and there are beautiful videos by Dylan Winter on the YouTube channel. Keep turning left here. You know, Richard, you suggested I get a hold of him and interview him, and I've tried to get a hold of him, and I think the basic problem is uh, he doesn't have Skype or Wi-Fi, and I can't conduct an interview easily uh, without Skype or Wi-Fi. I can call a landline phone, but the quality's not as good, and I'd prefer not. And he's sort of sketchy on, on having internet access, so I've never been able to actually talk to him. Neil Fletcher also suggests that I, I interview him, but uh, so far, no luck. We have exchanged a few emails probably over a year ago. Uh, maybe I'll try to reach out to him again. Anyway, continuing on with the letter, and then continuing on with his letter... So if you'd like, so if you would like, I would be happy to be interviewed with my wife and relate our experiences to listeners. Sometime we go from the 30th of July to the 6th of August and sail in the Ionian on a flotilla holiday from Palarios on a Beneteau 393. Then he goes on to say that he plans on being making it a business. Good luck to you, Richard. That would be good. He wants to be. Uh, he wants to make it a business of taking people out with him. He'll get a boat and he'll offer bookings on that boat. Lots of people are trying to do that, Richard. But if you're successful, more power to you. Okay. Other things related to the podcast. I've listened to all of yours. It was the first podcast I ever started listening to. It 
corresponded a handful of times over the years. But a point I don't recall you talking about, or anybody else on podcasts, since I've been listening to them, is what happens when you anchor out and ding in? Is how you secure your tender? Are there special places for tenders when ashore? Are they at risk of being stolen much? Do you immobilize the engine somehow? Do you lock the tender to the key somehow? Are you ever charged to moor your tender somewhere? Also, overwintering and your water tank. How do you look after or sterilize it? Do you leave it full or empty over the winter? You mentioned your planning podcast, that you drink your water tank water, that you drink your tank water after filtering it. Have you ever had any issues? It's generally recommended to all Europeans traveling to Greece, Spain, and the local area to buy bottled water as there are many bugs that the locals have adapted to but will give us a bad stomach. As you can see, Turkey is red, and he gives me a link to a uh, water and hygiene website from the World Health Organization, from the Travel Health Pro Organization. And finally now, I mentioned to you a while back about your podcast being nibbled away as you upload new ones, and you mentioned that they're all on your website to listen to. I guess when it I guess when new listeners come along, they may want to listen from the start. But you never said on your podcast that they're all available to listen to. I think it would be worth your while mentioning this and also listing some of the highlights from the interviews, thus encouraging new listeners to go back and discover more. Andy Shell, I've noticed recently, has started re-releasing old interviews. Hope to hear from you soon, Richard. All right, Richard, I'm going to start down the freeway now, or down the road to get on the freeway, as soon as I can get into traffic. Yeah, lots of rain today, and it's snowing above 6,000 feet, so I'm going to have to be careful. All right, so let's let's start out with uh, the ones I probably will forget at the end, and start with those. So about my past podcasts. They're all available at the website. Richard, I don't like to go through and type. As you know, I'm not much of a typist. That's why I do an audio podcast. And I don't get that much traffic to the website. Maybe three or 400 people a day at the most as a general rule. And I'm an audio person. And I guess if people are that interested, they can go to the website and listen to the old episodes. I have thought about putting out uh, maybe the first 50 podcasts into Gumroad, 40 or 50 into Gumroad and, and selling them. I know Dan Carlin, one of my favorite podcasters on his hardcore history shows, he makes them available free initially, and these are long podcasts, three, four, five-hour podcasts. And then as he fills up his bandwidth, he, he basically takes them off the podcast directory and if you want to go back and listen to his old episodes, then you go buy them. And I've bought some of his old episodes because he does a phenomenal job. And I like to support podcasters that do a great job. And I think he's one of the best. He's one of the most popular podcasters out there. And I think it's his main living. Uh, he does two podcasts, Dan Carlin, Hardcore History, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. And I like both of them. So I think maybe what I will do when I get the time, which I don't know when that's going to happen is go through and take the podcasts that are no longer being listed in iTunes and uh, maybe in groups of 
30 or 40 or however many I decide. Um, you know, remember, 30 would be like almost 30 hours of listening, and I don't know if people want to go through that, but maybe I'll do it in groups of 10 and make it available on Gumroad for a, for a nominal fee, maybe 5 or $10 for those downloads. And if people are really interested, then they can go uh, at the website and get them for free because <laughs> I'm not going to charge for them at the website. But if you want the convenience of uh, having one mp3 file or multiple mp3 files of the past episodes that I'll probably do it on Gumroad. Alright, the next one that uh, I might forget as well is that on what I do with my water. Okay, I will buy bottled water occasionally. Sometimes it's just more convenient to buy bottled water. But if I've got three people on my boat, I don't have enough room to store all the water we're going to need. And that being said, I still do buy a lot of bottled water. We tend to fill up the quarter berth with beverages, beer, water, wine, that doesn't go in the refrigerator. And as we need to, we pull it out and put it in the refrigerator. But I, I don't like the, uh, the plastics that are just being wasted altogether. It's going to be bumpier for about the next mile, so you're going to get about... This is on I, uh, I-80 going east... And this section of freeway is really bumpy for some reason. Probably all the semis that come back and forth. But it, it, it'll get better in a few minutes. So put up with the bad, uh, the bad vibration. But anyway, I, you know, I'm an avid outdoorsman and I, and I hike as well. And when I go on a hike, I'll take a little pocket filter, a Sawyer pocket filter, and just use that as a straw to drink from streams or uh, or filter water into a bottle. And that's what I'll do when I go hiking. And that's really cheap. Those are around $20. And you could take a filter like that. And it would probably work pretty well for you. I think they're highly rated and they're inexpensive and they're around $20. And when I go hiking, I'm worried about Giardia, uh, those sort of things. No matter what you do when you're traveling, you're running the risk of getting sick from the local water. Do you think Do you think all those restaurants you're visiting are washing the salad with bottled water? No, they're probably more than likely using tap water for a lot of the stuff they do. And no matter how careful you are on the water you drink, if you're going out to restaurants and you're eating any salads, you run the risk of getting food poisoning. Relate a story to you. My wife and I were taking a trip to Peru to go visit Machu Picchu a few years ago. And the night before, I'd gone to a party and I'd had some sushi. And then earlier in the day, I'd gone to a fast food restaurant and had a fish taco. And so we fly from Salt Lake to Miami. In Miami, we hop on a plane to head down to Peru. About as we get over Cuba, I start having nasty, nasty pains and uh, fortunately I had been upgraded to, uh, to first class because I was flying on a friend's buddy pass. Not that I paid for it, <laughs> but I was flying on a friend's buddy pass and I was in first class. And the restroom was very close to me and it was easy to get to, but for the rest of that trip, about every 15 minutes, I was running to the, to the toilet, neither vomiting or, or getting sick. So I arrived in 
Lima, Peru, and I was down for two days just getting over this food poisoning that I got from something I ate in the United States. So I went to South America with food poisoning I got in the United States. I never got sick while I was down there, but I got sick from something I ate in the United States. So no matter how careful you are, you can get bad bugs and just just deal with it. I've gotten sick in, not in Istanbul, in Cappadocia one time I got sick. My daughters got very ill one time uh, to the point where we had to give her IVs. Luckily, the local hospitals know how to deal with it because it's something they see all the time. All right, I'm just entering Parley's Canyon right now behind two semi-trucks, and the rain has turned to wet snow, but it's not coming down too hard right now. But there's a big oil tanker on the right and another semi right in front of me with some big concrete pipes piled on the back that I've got to get around. So my daughter got very sick. I keep... Um, I keep the antibiotics for dysentery on the boat with me uh, because this is the this is the antibiotics that we got from Turkey and I probably need to renew those the specific antibiotics for for dysentery uh, because no matter how careful you are it can hit you I've been sick oh three or four times over the years uh, with dysentery I get sick and I get over it. My daughter gets sick and she has a hard time really recovering. My wife gets sick and she has what's called C. diff and she hates to take antibiotics because it really messes with her system. But if you're going to travel, you're going to have to run the risk of getting sick from, from eating and drinking. But okay, getting back to the water on the boat, do I drain the tank at the end of the year? Yes, I drain the tank at the end of the year. It's a stainless steel tank. It's underneath the cockpit. It's 30 gallons. Around 30 gallons. Actually, I take it back. It's around 22 gallons. And it sits right underneath the cockpit and fills through a fill in the cockpit. Every year when I go there and I put in the first batch of water, I fill it up. Nasty little pieces of dried algae come out. You know, when you're pumping the hand pump. And it's not going to kill you, but I, but it's unsightly. And I'd, sometimes I'll take a, a bottle of Clorox or bleach and put it in there and let it sit for a while and then pump it out. And now that Jack taught me a clever siphoning method, I think I'll do that this year when I get over there. Before Jack taught me this technique... I would sit there on the hand pump all day long and just pump this out and pump and pump and pump and pump because my fresh water, I don't have an electric pump on. It's a hand pump for obvious reasons. I'm trying to preserve the fresh water on the boat. I don't want to make it too easy to waste water. So with Jack's method, we took a hose out to the side of the boat, ran the hose to the bottom of the tank, and uh, with some quick up and down motions, were able to siphon it all out and it ran out very quickly so Jack taught me that and I'd, I'd known about siphoning tanks before but I was always having to suck it out the air and hope the air wouldn't go back in but Jack taught me this very quick and easy method to do it so I'll be siphoning it out when I get over there this year so this year when I get over to the boat I'll fill up the water tank throw in a bunch of bleach and let it sit there for oh, maybe a day and then come back and then, uh, and then siphon all that water out. And then I'll fill it up again with water. Now, 
some of the things I've had to worry about is some of the areas where you fill up water, the water's not good because it's brackish, so it tastes salty. Some areas have bad water. Just taste the water before you put it in. If it's, if it's brackish, you don't want to really even to be filtering brackish water because you can't filter out the salt uh, from the hand filter I use. Now the hand filter I use is a Catadyne, and I'm not sure the model. I'll put a link to it in suggested products at the website. There's a new link I put on the website, which is uh, suggested books and products. I will put a link to this Catadyne filter. I think it's the Explore filter. It's a big filter. It's about nine inches in length, maybe 10 inches in length, and about two inches in diameter. And inside of it, it has a ceramic filter. And that ceramic filter is good for thousands of gallons of water. And the reason I chose the Catadyne is because of the ceramic filter. I don't have to change filters very often, very, very rarely. I've never had to change the filter. When it gets hard to pump, you need to take it apart and, and clean it. It's very simple. You basically unscrew the ends of the uh, ceramic filter, pull the ceramic filter, the case that goes around the ceramic filter. You unscrew these little caps that are on the end of it. One of them has the handle on it. You pull out the ceramic filter and you take a little, a little um, oh, it's like a half round brush with some, oh, it's like Scotch-Brite on it. You just take a quick swish down it, and you'll see some slime come off the filter, which is what it's filtered out. And then you, uh, then you wash it off, put it back in. I always wash it off. I always clean it off with clean water, even though I don't think you have to. i just a little bit anal about that. I always use the clean water that I've filtered out to clean the, the filter. But that's the outside of the filter. That's where the water, the dirty water, goes from the outside to the inside of the filter. And once it's gone through the ceramic filter, it goes into your into your bottle or whatever you're putting it into. These filters are what they send out with the Red Cross to go to places you and I probably never want to go to. Uh, it's good for pretty much anything, any bugs you can imagine. So I've never gotten sick from my wa filtered water. I've gotten sick from eating salads at restaurants, but not from my filtered water. Now, don't get me wrong, I still have plenty of bottled water I do carry on the boat, but I try to minimize that as much as possible. Now we're going to talk about anchoring out. I, you know, I started sailing up in the Northwest, and anchoring out is what I did right from the beginning. But, you know, when I go down to Southern California, there's not that many places to anchor. You can go over to the Channel Islands and anchor out a little bit. Very uncomfortable anchorages as a general rule. They're, they're rolly and bumpy done it many times but okay basically you got to know how to anchor all right I'm not going to go into a whole podcast on anchoring techniques I have lessons and uh, that are available to you and I've talked about anchoring techniques in the past and there's plenty of books on anchoring techniques but number one you need to anchor you're going to anchor that's going to be the first step in, in anchoring out anchor or pick up a mooring now, I always feel more secure if I picked up a mooring and I've dove into the water and checked out the actual mooring, gone down to the bottom of the 
the seabed and looked at the mooring and looked at the block and looked at the uh, chain and line that connects the mooring line to the block. Once I've done that, if I feel comfortable and I'm, I'm always willing to leave my boat on a mooring, where if I anchor, I'm always nervous. I'm always nervous. Somebody can come along, anchor over the top of you. When they pull up their anchor, they can pop your anchor out. So I'm always somewhat nervous when I anchor to leave the boat for any length of time. Because if you're not there to re-anchor, if the boat gets popped, if the anchor gets popped up, then you never know what's going to happen. I'm going to tell a quick story. Years ago, when I was sailing through the Aeonian Islands, the Windy Islands on the north of Sicily, we got in a storm. That's, they call them the Aeonian Islands because it's so damn windy. Aeonian, I think, means windy. I think the, I'm not sure if it's Greek or Roman, but nonetheless, it was windy. And we were we we had anchored out. Uh, I forget the name of the island we anchored out to, but there only was one really good all-around anchoring area, and that was in Lipari. And so we got blown out of this anchor. We started dragging anchor in the middle of the night, and so we pulled up the anchor and, and headed back to Lipari. And when we got back to Lipari, everybody else in the Aeonian Islands was pretty much filled up all the anchoring space. There was one spot available, uh, but the problem with it, they were deep anchorages. They were 80, 90 foot anchorages, and if you want a scope of four to one, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of line out there. And this was before I had my electric windlass. Nowadays, I wouldn't worry about it so much, but, be, but at that time, I had a hand windlass, and I would have to pull all the chain up by hand. So pulling up 350 feet of 5/16ths high test chain is a is a lot of work. Well, we didn't have much choice. The wind was blowing consistently from one direction, and so I dropped my anchor and sort of was blown back into this little sort of a U-shaped cove. And as long as the wind blew from this one direction. I was okay, but I had a lot of line out. I had a lot of scope out because it was so it was so deep. And I was stretched out into this little bay. And underneath me was maybe 50 feet, but there was no room to anchor in there because it was already full. So my swing, if I'd come in, would have been put me too close to other boats. Well, as it was, uh, we were there for a couple days. And we got tired of being on the boat. And we'd get off and wander around. And... One time I was wandering around and I came back to the boat and the wind had died and my boat was gone. And I looked around and I looked around and, and uh, there it was tied up to a fishing boat that was tied up to a, to a, to a dock. And I, I went over to the fishing boat and the fishing boat said, uh, the master of the fishing boat didn't speak very good English, but he pointed this French catamaran out there that, that had taken my boat and moved it over and tied me up next to him. So I went over to the catamaran, the French guy, and I said, hey, thanks for taking care of my boat. He said, yeah, the wind died, and uh, and you started drifting all over the place because I had so much scope out, and you started to drift into my boat, so I got in my dinghy and put took you over there and, and tied you up there. So when you anchor out, those are the things you have to worry about. You know, if you leave your boat and the wind shifts, where are you going to end up? Are you going to end up, uh, is your anchor still going to hold if the wind shifts or not? But nonetheless, uh, 
let's get on to the other parts of your of your question. The tender. Well, I have a about a nine foot tender. I've had three tenders, three or four tenders since I've owned the boat. They wear out after a while. And I have a little three, three and a half horsepower Mercury outboard engine. And that is just fine for me because I can I can pretty much lift this dinghy by myself and throw it over the lifelines and throw it into the water and I can retrieve it easily with a halyard tied to the bow of it and bring it up on deck. And to me, anything bigger than that is just creating havoc. I know I see, you know, like sailing Delos, they have that nice big dinghy. I think it's almost aluminum. And then they have that big outboard motor on it. And if you've got a crew of six strong <laughs> young people, uh, that's great. But when you're by yourself and you need to get in the water, it's uh, it, that that's 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 a pain. I was out on the Channel Islands with my friend Jack on his 47-foot Choi Lee, and he had a nice big dinghy. It was an Avon dinghy, and it was a hard-bottom dinghy, and we had to get in it, and we had to put in the floorboards, and we had, and it was a it was an, an hour and a half to our project just to get the dinghy inflated, and then he had a big outboard for it. I know, but outboards are great. Big outboards are nice. They can move you fast, but they don't. They, but they. I was the one in the dinghy trying to get it loaded on the transom of the out, of the uh, of the tender, and uh, it was you know, the dinghy's bouncing up and down, the boat's bouncing up and down, and it's swinging around, and ah, uh, I just came away convinced that I never wanted to have a bigger a bigger engine on my tender than I've got. Mine moves me slowly, but it moves me there, and I'm not in that big a hurry when I when I put my ten my my motor on my tender. I can lift that motor up with one arm and put it on the mounting bracket, which is on the back of the boat. I can get the dinghy on the boat easily. I've had to take two trips on occasion to get everybody's luggage into the boat. That's another story by itself. They brought in so much luggage with them that I had to take a separate trip just for the damn luggage. They were never invited back again. But still, it does the it does the trick. So you're if you're like a typical American, and you're not, you're British. So you probably. Yeah, I remember the first boat I chartered. We had one of those old Seagull motors, and it worked great. I don't see those anymore, but it worked great. That's a bare bones motor for you as well. But. Americans seem to think bigger is better, and not me. I think a small a small motor is perfect. One that I can lift with one arm and put on the transom, put on the mounting bracket of the transom of my boat, and put on the on the dinghy itself. Now, what about theft? Okay, if you're in the Caribbean, you better chain everything up because there is a uh, a known problem of dinghies disappearing, motors disappearing. You know, even if it's on the back of your boat, you better padlock up everything. When I put my motor on my boat, I have a padlock, I lock it up, depending on where I am. But as a general rule, almost all the time when I put my motor on the tender, I lock it up with a padlock. Now, anybody with a bolt cutter can get through that. So you're really only stopping the, the thief without any tools. But that's the first first thing. Now, I also have about a 20-foot 
quarter inch galvanized chain that I will take with me sometimes if I feel like I need to lock up the dinghy. When I was in Spain and Italy, I used this quite often. The only time I've really had any problem with vandalism was in, in Sevilla, Spain. We had anchored just right in Sevilla, this marina that doesn't, doesn't exist anymore, but at the time we'd anchored, well, we hadn't anchored, we'd tied up at this marina. And we needed to go do some shopping into town, so it was easier just to take the dinghy upriver and tie it by a bridge and go shopping, then bring this stuff back in the dinghy rather than, than lug it. So we took the dinghy up the river, fairly close to where the store was, took it over to shore, and I did take the chain and padlock it. But there were some teenage boys that were playing on the, uh, on the bridge they were jumping in the water and getting out and jumping in the water right around me and they went over and vandalized the uh, the cover of the dinghy that torn off the cover of the dinghy that torn off some latches just doing stupid stuff that teenage boys sometimes do and that's the only time I've had any vandalism on the dinghy was was that one time other than that uh, I've been cautious in Italy and Spain and Croatia because there is a lot of petty theft in those countries but once I got to Greece and Turkey they don't have a they don't have a culture of theft that's not accepted in their culture and I've never really had to worry about it and as far as where do I tie up the dinghy wherever I find a spot for it you know I've tied it up between moored boats uh, that have moorings you can always squeeze a dinghy in somewhere I've never been charged for anything. I've thrown it up on beaches, uh, making sure I drag it way up on the beach and come back. And I've never had any problem in Greece and Turkey. Uh, never really any problem anywhere. Uh, if I'm going into a big city, big cities I always have more crime than little cities. Uh, sometimes I feel uncomfortable enough to chain up the dinghy. But like I say, Greece and Turkey, I haven't felt the need to do it very often. Alright, I've been talking for over a half an hour now. I'm going by the backside of Park City Ski Resort. So Richard, I think that pretty much answers your question on the dinghy, the past episodes, and the water issue. Appreciate you writing in. Thanks for the question. I need to uh, point out, if you're on my mailing list... Uh, a couple weeks ago, probably about three weeks ago, you might have gotten multiple emails from me saying a new episode of this has been published, and I'm sorry about that. I apologize that. Uh, when the episodes of Ian and Tyler Drogan came out, suddenly my feed to iTunes quit working. So the, the blog post would go on the website, everybody would get an email from it, but it wasn't being picked up at Amazon and I struggled with this problem for two weeks I reset the website I restored the website I shut down the website I did all sorts of things and uh, and I could not figure out why iTunes was not picking up the feeds I wrote uh, the, the company that produced the RSS feed for me PowerPress by Blueberry and they were 
as helpful as they could be. They pointed out a couple problems with my feed and said the feed was working and I could not figure it out. I called up my web server after talking to three or four different people over a couple week period of time and spending literally hours and hours trying to figure it out. It came down to the fact that I needed to clear the cache at the server and once I cleared the cache everything started working again and I would have never figured that out by myself. I sure wish I had an IT person that volunteered their efforts on this podcast. I am not an IT person. That's going to pretty much finish up the episode. Uh, Let me suggest you sign up for the email list and get eight of the 16 free lessons for the Sailing Learn to Sail basic keelboat certification. If you want a private consultation on chartering a boat in Greece or Turkey, write me, franz1 at medsailor.com. And please consider supporting the podcast by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash medsailor, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R. The website is medsailor.com and you can get all the past episodes at the website until I might get some of them in Gumroad. The RSS feed starts going wacky if you get more than like 50. They suggest you keep like 10 episodes at iTunes. I've tried 100. I was worried that that was sort of causing some of the problems with my RSS feed. So I've cut it back to 50, I think. I'm not sure as I'm driving here. But anyway, if you have suggestions, thoughts, questions, please write me, franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. Get out there and go sailing. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.